This week on Perspective, weapons of war, the growing global military budget. Not since the end of the Cold War has military spending around the globe reached this level. $1.8 trillion, according to recently released data from the respected Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Now, admittedly, that's still less than half the U.S. federal budget. But in the last 20 years, global military spending has increased 76 percent. The world's two biggest economies, the U.S. and China, are not surprisingly the two biggest spenders, accounting for half of the world's military spending. The U.S. is by far the biggest spender and increased its spending last year by more than 4%. China's spending has steadily increased over the past quarter of a century, reflecting growth in its economy, and its military spending is now 10 times what it was a quarter of a century ago. For the first time, Russia dropped out of the top five big spenders. Its spending last year decreased by 3.5%. Also this week, Russia and China displayed some of their military might in joint exercises in the Chinese port city of Qingdao and in the East China and Yellow Seas. So what story do these latest military budgets tell? We're going to try to get at some of that in the program today. We'll speak to a noted expert on U.S. defense spending and take a closer look at Russia and China as well. We'll also have some Canadian perspectives. But we begin with the numbers and Peter Vetsiman. He's a senior researcher with the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, the independent organization which collected the military spending data. First, tell me how you would describe the significance of the increase in global military spending. How, how, how significant is it? It is, if you compare 2017 to 2018, a relatively small increase. But it is the second year in which we see an increase. And I think we have seen in the past period, so from the mid-1990s up until about 2010, there was a very steep increase. And it was kind of a plateau, uh, but now it is increasing again, and that I think we we, we think is quite significant, uh, a, a tendency to again uh, increase military spending deserves uh, further uh, in-depth discussion. I was going to say, what does it represent? Why is it concerning for you? It is concerning for two reasons. One of them, of course, is that military spending means that you can't spend on other things like education, health, etc. Um, but of course, there might be very good reasons to spend on your defence too. Um, but still, it is a significant sum, and that needs very good scrutiny. Uh, and secondly, of course, an increase in military spending also raises the question uh, if states are feeling more threatened, and to which extent states feel that military means are the right answer to uh, security problems and also an important tool in their foreign policy. And I think that's also something which requires more attention. You point out in, in the report that the, much of the increase is due to the United States and China. And what does that suggest to you? Let's start with China. In the case of China, we've seen that it has increased its military spending continuously over the past 24 years. And it has continuously followed the growth of the economy. So if the economy grows with 5%, then military spending can be expected to grow with 5% too. 
Um, so it's kind of a, a long-term development there. It does mean, however, that in those 24 years, uh, China has really developed its military very significantly, and as such has now become much more of a global military power than it was before. In the case of the US, we have seen a very different development. We've seen that the military spending actually decreased from about 2011-12. But now with the Trump administration, we see an emphasis again on the military as an important tool. And, and therefore, we see that clear increase in the US. And that in itself is of concern. Is it really the military power we need right now? Or are there other tools we want to refer to when we want to uh, create security in the world? At the same time, in spite of the political rhetoric, Russia's spending has declined. Help me understand that. Okay, important there is to understand that, first of all, Russian spending increased until about 2016. So around 2010, Russia came to the conclusion that it had both the economic means and also kind of it felt the need to really modernize its armed forces. It set about in this uh, uh, process and, and really it has uh, increased both its spending and also therefore improved its military capability without doubt. But it has come to a point when also the Russian economy, uh, well, is not in the best state. The international oil prices have dropped a lot since 2014, and that has a very significant impact on the Russian economy. So they have to make a choice there. And also there in Russia, despite the type of government you have there, you can't just continue to spend on your military territory. You have to take into to, to account the other sectors too. And that seems to have had a clear impact, meaning that Russian spending has now uh, dropped a few percentage points over the, few, oh, 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 over the past two years. We, we've been talking about global powers, essentially, but of course you look at other countries in, in, in the world, too. What are the other regions or countries in particular that you think uh, should be, we should be paying attention to? I think there's several parts of the world which we should pay attention to, but I, I'd mention one, um, and that one is the Middle East, and there's several reasons for that. Um, one reason is that for some countries in the Middle East, we don't have information. There is a lack of transparency, which we think is a concern, but we do know that their spending is very high, for example, uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, but what's also very important there to mention is that several countries in the region, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, Kuwait uh, and to some extent also Iran have military spending which as a percentage of their uh, GDP or in other words as a percentage of their economy is particularly high, uh, much higher than it is elsewhere and that indicates um, a very high level of militarization in the region. So we see that a country like Saudi Arabia which isn't that large really um, uh, is now the third largest military spender in the world. Uh, and that is a significant concern, the more so if you see that countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE also actively use their military in interventions abroad, such as in Yemen. Mr. Benjamin, thank you very much for your perspective and your detail on this. You're welcome. The U.S. devoted $649 billion to military spending in 2018, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. That included money for 16,600 more active duty troops, 
modernization of equipment, the creation of the Space Corps, the purchase of new planes, submarines, and destroyers, and around $13 billion for science and technology. China spent an estimated $250 billion on its military. Those two countries combined add up to half of the world's share spent on military expenditure. And the U.S. alone spends almost as much as the next eight biggest spending countries combined. China, Saudi Arabia, India, France, Russia, the U.K., Germany, and Japan. In comparison, Canada spent $21.6 billion on its military, 1.2% of the global total. That's on par with Turkey, Spain, and Israel. Perspective now from Washington on what the numbers mean for international rivalries and relationships. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow and director of research at the Brookings Institution. His most recent book is The Senkaku Paradox, Risking Great Power War Over Small Stakes. When you look at the increase in military spending globally, particularly though looking at the United States and China, how do you think we should interpret that kind of increase? I would not call this an arms race because I see restraint even though I see growth. What I mean by that is that each country is holding their spending to a roughly similar level of a percentage of GDP. And we don't know for sure exactly with the Chinese, the numbers aren't completely transparent. With the United States, there has been a bit of a blip up in the Trump presidency, but we're already well into uh, a fiscal year where the increase is not nearly as great as it had been the year before. And CPRI's got a time lag here. They're measuring spending, and that tends to be something you can only look at once the year is over. So as we now are into 2019, looking ahead to 2020, we're seeing a leveling off of the Trump buildup, and we're seeing U.S. military spending at about 3.1 or 3.2 percent of GDP, which is still pretty low by any standard relative to 1945. There have only been a couple of periods, like the 1990s, when we were in that range. I'm not going to call U.S. military spending low in absolute terms by any means, but I do think that relative to the size of GDP, uh, relative to the size of competitors, there is not some, you know, race for the uh, race for the stars. It's a more restrained and measured kind of military buildup. And for China, even though we have taken note of how they've become easily the world's number two military spender over the last decade or so, they have been holding military spending as a percent of their GDP relatively constant at a level less than 2 percent, which means that if they were in NATO, uh, they would theoretically be <laughs> criticized by President Trump for not spending enough. And so uh, I'm being a little facetious to make a point. But the broader point is that while I don't, I don't relish military spending and don't think it does anybody any inherent good, and it would be nice to have a more peaceful world where we didn't have to spend almost $2 trillion globally on our collective armed forces, I also don't think we should, uh, you know, get ourselves worked up to the point where we sense some imminence to all-out rivalry or even conflict just because military budgets are going up. This is not by the standards of history, a major arms race. But at the same time, we do talk about great power competition or great power rivalry. And it seems to be, as you point out, different than it once was. You've also suggested that the United States, particularly, and its allies need to think about that and war and deterrence in a different way. How so? Well, I think that China and Russia are 
formidable military powers in an era of formidable military technological change and capability. And particularly if you choose certain kinds of conflict scenarios to consider, uh, it, it's going to be increasingly difficult for us to be confident that we could be superior to Russia or An China, especially, well, especially in, in conflicts near their borders. Right. And so it's for those kinds of reasons that I think we have to be a little more creative and think about how if certain kinds of conflicts were to break out, we could be a little bit more asymmetric maybe even not resort immediately to military lethal force in certain scenarios and, uh, and, and try to prevent great power war. Because I'm not trying to sound Pollyannish here. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying to find a middle ground between, you know, crying wolf and saying there's some all-out arms race, which there is not, but also implying that somehow we're in a fundamentally peaceful world, which I do not agree with or take for granted. We've got tenser relations among the great nuclear weapon states, especially Russia, China, the United States, and we're going to have to keep looking for ways to defuse that. As so often happens, though, um, larger conflicts are, are sparked by smaller ones. And, and to a certain degree, it depends on how those smaller conflicts. For example, uh, we have uh, Canadian forces, for example, in Latvia, uh, because there's a concern about Russian aggression there. Uh, does it suggest right. a different approach to those kinds of smaller flashpoints? Well, I worry quite a bit about the Baltic states, as do many people. And I just written a new book, The Senkaku Paradox, which looks at scenarios in the Baltic states as well as in uh, the Western Pacific with China. And with the Baltic states, uh, my concern is not so much that Russia would try to take and annex an entire country, but rather that it might try to nibble away near a border region where there are a lot of Russian speakers within Estonia or Latvia. And Russia might use its 2014 foreign policy doctrine that claims a right to protect those Russians, even though they're not really under any, any risk. Uh, but, you know, Vladimir Putin could construct or or invent a, an apparent threat to them. And then that could create a pretext to send in little green men just over the border. Putin could say it was a small-scale temporary measure, but it could throw NATO into existential crisis as we debated and disagreed with each other in Brussels about how to respond. So it's that kind of scenario that I worry about most. And for that kind of a scenario, I don't think we should start shooting quickly or necessarily feel the obligation for a direct military counter in the first instance. I think there are more clever, asymmetric, indirect ways to address it. Like? Well, I think uh, economic warfare is mm. the essence of it, combined with forward military deployments to make sure that any kind of a little green man aggression doesn't go any further. So it, it, all, it obviously all depends. I'm talking about hypotheticals. But if, if Putin wants to go over the border into one small town, which, let's say, 50 percent uh, Russian-speaking, 50 percent Estonian-speaking, uh, and he thinks he can control the major town squares and establish some kind of temporary martial law. And he'll say he's doing this to protect the Russian speakers who live there. But in fact, I think his real goal would be to lead NATO into a fundamental debate that would tear it apart. And for that scenario, rather than send a desert storm-like force to liberate that town and, you know, destroy the village to save it, so to speak, I think we should establish a defensive perimeter within Estonia that is close to the town that's been infiltrated, but not necessarily going in to liberate it anytime soon, and then apply concerted Western sanctions of the type we've already applied after Crimea, uh, but that would be more intense mm -hmm. and that would be designed to last as long as necessary. 
this week, Russia and China are engaged in large joint military exercise. And overall, how does that closer relationship developing between Russia and China make a difference, or does it? Well, I'm not overly worried about it. I think they're naturally looking for some solace from each other in a world where the West is less friendly, and the United States in particular less friendly. And so it's sort of a natural law of international politics, almost like Newton's laws of physics and reactions and counter-reactions. But having said that, it does mean that we have to be careful about getting into a serious conflict with one, because that could create vulnerabilities vis-a-vis -vis the other. So one of the reasons why, for me, these limited war scenarios should not necessarily be met head-on is if we were to meet them head-on, it could require the majority of our available military forces to do so in one theater, leaving ourselves more exposed in the other place. And that's especially a problem for the United States, which, of course, has alliances in both the Western Pacific region and in Europe. But it could affect Canada or another country that tends to be, uh, you know, very supportive of a lot of important military operations with the United States, especially when they are particularly uh, crucial and, and the rubber really meets the road and the going gets tough. We know that Canadians and Americans tend to stay together in most of those kind of situations. So I think that's one more reason to be wary of rushing to a military response, because it creates opportunities for the other country if we face off either Russia or China. Uh, and we don't want to, you know, create that kind of perceived window of opportunity for them. What does all of this say about the whole idea of a U.S.-led global world order? We've certainly seen uh, the thinking around that change politically, but how does this change it militarily, if at all? Well, I would guess, first of all, that for many Canadians and many others in NATO and elsewhere, uh, this doesn't feel like a U.S.-led order at the moment. <laughs> uh, the Trump presidency in particular, but not only the Trump presidency, probably have called into doubt just how much Washington's leadership can be assumed to be strong and resolute and, and wise. Having said that, I believe the global order writ large, which is partly collectively run by the G8 or G7 now, by NATO writ large, by the major nations, at least within NATO, uh, Japan, a number of friends and powerful countries besides the United States, I think that order is still pretty good and pretty strong. And one of the things I'm arguing in my new book is let's not overreact if there seems to be some fraying in one place or another, uh, like, you know, Ukraine. Not every place is equally important to the West. And we do need to push back when China and Russia do things that we don't like, but we don't need to see every threat or every variant of a threat in equally dire terms. And so, on balance, the Western world order is remarkable. It still encompasses about two-thirds of world GDP and about two-thirds of world military spending. And that puts us collectively in a very strong place, provided that we stay together. Thank you very much for your insight and your perspective on this. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, the chance to be on the show. I think that in some cases, it's definitely more um, mild, wide, and inch deep. Uh, when you look at some of what the U.S. does over the years, obviously, part of spending on your military is just to have a big military. And that's certainly been true of America, especially as of the Cold War. Just um, having a bigger budget so that you're completely dominant in the field, I think that's a lot of what America does. That's a lot of what China does as well. Um, just knowing that they are by far the biggest military spenders definitely um, makes it a bit useless if you're a smaller country to try to match that. Um, for a country like Canada, I think it's very important to look at where you're spending it 
Um, I think we're pretty intelligent as things go about spending it in useful areas. But um, especially today, when you look at the types of security challenges that we're facing, uh, it's increasingly asymmetrical warfare. It's increasingly disinformation and um, attempts to sabotage democracy that might not be um, outright warfare, but that are nevertheless more effective. I saw a statistic recently that said um, Russia spent just over $200,000 in their cyber uh, campaign against the U.S. So we're seeing how we're redirecting this money. And in a lot of ways, it's much less expensive for these new types of warfare, this new cyber warfare. So the money is being sent um, for disinformation. It's being sent to meddle in other countries' elections. And you can do it with a lot less money than it takes to uh, launch a missile or to do a... Um, a surveillance uh, flight. One thing that really fascinates me about all of this is is diplomacy. I think when we look at the defense spending, it's it's wrongly defined. When we think of defense spending, we think of the money that you're going to spend on buying aircraft, on buying ships, on buying um, guns. We should also be thinking of diplomacy because diplomacy should be our first line of defense, and it should be the best. It should be the option we turn to when we are trying to facilitate partnerships and facilitate peace. So. The question for me is how much money should we be diverting to the military as opposed to, uh, to diplomatic means? It's interesting to note that in the last three decades, there's been growth in military spending in the Asian and Oceania countries. And uh, this has been on the rise ever since 1988. And it's a point to mention that the military spending in this region accounted for 28% of the global total in uh, 2018. The Asian Oceania countries see a threat with China and uh, the US. And I think a lot of countries are seeing US and China as a threat. So they're trying to bolster their military spending to make sure that they are well protected. As we mentioned earlier, China and Russia engaged in joint military exercises this week in the East China and Yellow Seas. A look now at the strength of the relationship between the two countries. Vasily Kashin is a senior fellow at the Institute of Far Eastern Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences. First, I want to ask you, as we watch the joint military exercises now between China and Russia, what is the message those two countries want to deliver with those exercises? If we talk about the recent naval exercises, these are yearly exercises which started uh, uh, in 2012. Uh, last year, 2018, uh, Russia missed these exercises simply because there were some technical difficulties. Now, they uh, this year, they're slightly greater scale than most of the previous ones. But it's a regular practice, and um, it should be understood that Russia and China uh, are, uh, have been holding, uh, holding joint exercises for, uh, like, more than a decade, since 2005. Uh, and currently, we have several uh, joint military exercises every year. It's um, rather big degree of military-to-military uh, -military cooperation, uh, something which you can observe um, among, for example, some of the NATO countries. Uh, it affects every branch and service almost. So it's 
like gradual move towards greater interoperability. And the message is that uh, one day it is possible that two militaries will operate together. In that, is there a political message as well? Uh, well, uh, I think there is a political message. Uh, clearly, at this stage, both governments uh, refrain from uh, stating any intention to form military alliance. Actually, currently, both Russia and China say that military alliances are something which should belong to the past, etc. But uh, they clearly do have this option of quickly forming an effective military alliance. And they show to everyone that this option exists if uh, things turn really bad in their confrontation with the United States. I was going to say, what does it mean for the United States? What's, what does that strengthening of the relationship between China and Russia mean for the U.S.? Well, uh, Russia and China have significant complementarity in uh, both economics and in politics. For example, Russia is uh, a big commodity supplier, which can substitute, uh, to a certain extent, countries like uh, Canada and Australia, which are U.S. allies if things turn really bad uh, between U.S. and China. Uh, at the same time, in the military field, uh, Russia has uh, a huge nuclear force, and the Chinese have a huge ocean-going navy. Uh, Russians don't have that much of power projection capabilities, but they have a lot of uh, uh, real combat experience. Uh, Russians uh, are stronger in day-to-day -day, uh, foreign policy. They have more experienced uh, diplomatic apparatus, but the Chinese are strong in economic diplomacy. So. Uh, uh, when the two countries start to operate closer together, of course, uh, they, um, there will be a lot of synergy. Uh, however, uh, there will be a lot of downsides as well, because Russia doesn't really want to get involved into many uh, issues uh, which exist in Asia-Pacific, like uh, Russia is currently engaging both China and Japan. Russia has good relations with Vietnam, with India. The same goes for China, for example, in Europe. The Chinese have huge dimension of uh, their foreign policy, which is relations with the European Union, including in, uh, Eastern and Central European countries, which are not in good relations with Russia. So uh, if uh, two countries uh, really form a kind of alliance, they also have to lose a lot. And this is why this is a kind of reserve option, which can be exercised, in my opinion, under certain circumstances only. Um, do you think, do you see those circumstances emerging, that there may be a greater impetus toward a closer alliance? I think we are slowly uh, moving towards the towards these circumstances for example uh, you can take the recent developments around taiwan uh, the uh, change in the way us maintained their uh, their political and military relations with taiwan the so called normalization of arms sales to taiwan 
uh, greater number of visits of military delegations, uh, U.S. Navy presence in Taiwan Straits, like they're passing through the Straits several times a year. For China, it's a kind of non-negotiable uh, security issue. Uh, so this is an area, for example, where um, a, uh, a possibility of direct confrontation between U.S. and China can become real just in several years, in relatively short amount of time. And this is the situation when the two countries will uh, have a certain motivation to get closer. Mr. Cashin, thank you very much for your expertise on this. Thank you. Six of the 10 countries that spend the most as a percentage of their GDP are in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia and Oman top the list, followed by Kuwait, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel. In South America, military spending increased by 3.1%, driven in large part by Brazil. In Africa, overall military spending fell by 8.4%, the fourth year in a row of decline. Sudan's spending fell the farthest at 49%. And the country with the sharpest increase in military spending was Turkey, 24% in 2018 to a total of $19 billion. And that's our program for this week. If you'd like to take another look at any of the interviews in the program or at any of our previous programs, they're all available on our webpage at cpac.ca slash perspective. And now you can also take the program with you. All of our programs are available as a podcast. You can find links to where to listen on our webpage as well. And we'd like to hear from you. If you'd like to comment on anything you see or hear, you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook or by email at perspective at cpac.ca. I'm Alison Smith. Thanks for watching.